So, about a little over two years ago, my son Elijah and his cousin, around Christmas break, decided that they were going to go make some money. And so I told him, well, here's some things you could try to do. And he has a quad with this little trailer that fits on it. So we made this tool rack and we put shovels and rakes and leaf blowers and all that kind of stuff, hard hats. And uh, I said, you need to look like you're ready to work. So wear work clothes, have a work wagon, just be, look like you're ready to work because then people might hire a 10-year-old to do something. So they went out for like a couple days and Sunday afternoon he had finished it all up and he came into the house and I was sitting down, it was after church, and he just reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this wad of cash and he puts it right in front of my face and he just goes, bet, 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 just shaking it. And then he went over to his mom and did the same thing. And then to his sisters and did the same thing. And then to his little brother and did the same thing. And then he got on his quad and rode down to my father-in-law, his grandpa, we call him Poppy, Poppy's house, and showed Poppy the wad of money. And I said, when he showed it to me, I said, oh, now let's talk tool rental fee, buddy. I get a cut of this. <laughs> this is the real world now. Why did he need to do that? Because money's not enough, right? You can think you work for money, but money will never be enough. He also needed a good job, way to go. That's awesome, buddy. We're proud of you. Well done, good and faithful son. He needed that as well. So he's 10 years old, and already at 10 years of age, he's realizing that work is complicated, right? That it's not as easy as just, hey, go make some money and pay some bills, that there's something else. There's, there's a complication to work. So we're in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs gives us wisdom on a lot of things, and it actually talks about the complication of work. It's all in here. So it has these warnings on one side of work, like laziness and the sluggard, and there's a wrong kind of work. And don't use, un, like, false weights are an abomination to God. That if you're doing work in a way that rips people off, God says, that's an abomination to me. Right? So that's the one side, like, the, the, the bad side. But then on the other side, there's all this, hey, if you use your talents well, and if you use your gifts well, you'll be brought before kings. Doors will be swung open for you. Opportunities will be given to you if you do work in the right kind of way. So the Bible, and I love it, it's always honest on things. It doesn't play games. It gives you the honest dilemma of work. That work is a dilemma. Work is, I call it, a blurse. You guys know what a blurse is? It's a blessing plus a curse is a blurse. Like what is work? Work's a blurse. Like it has both those components to it, right? There's a blessing to work, but also look out, look out. And the Bible stands in contrast, if we could rewind the clock a long ways and go to the ancient world, it actually stands in contrast to the ancient myth of work, and it actually stands in contrast to what I'll call 
the modern myth of work. So there is an ancient myth of work. And we have some documents from 3,500 years ago that were written about the time of the Bible. And one of them is called the Enuma Elise. And it's like talking about ancient Near Eastern stuff. And, it, and it's the god Marduk. And the god Marduk is reflecting on work. And look what he says. It'll be up there. So this is what the god Marduk says. Maybe? No? Oh, I'm not getting anything here. Oh, that's awesome. So, someone could read it for me now. This is very hard. Like, he's talking about work right here. This is very hard. I will bring into being a lowly, primitive creature, we'll call man, to him shall be charged all the labor, so that the gods may have rest. So our very creation narrative, according to the Enuma Elise, was so that gods could Netflix and chill while humans labored and worked and fed them. So that's... That was the predominant narrative back then, that work is just, what a bummer, this is terrible, ah, we don't like work. And by the way, because of those kind of thoughts, that made fertile ground for slavery. That there'd be this special class of being, the pharaohs thought they were gods, the special class of beings that could kick back and do nothing while lowly, primitive, wrong DNA, wrong parent, wrong lineage people could do all the work for them. So this myth is broken, right? So that's myth number one. That's the ancient myth, and it's broken. But we have a modern myth. The modern myth is retire as quick as possible. I call it the retirement myth, right? So if you could Google right now, don't. If you could Google right now how to retire early, you'll get a billion hits. And then they'll tell you how, hey, Learn the secrets of how this person retired a millionaire at 13 years of age. And they're the new God. They're the new superhero, right? Like, hey, the whole goal of life is retire as early as you possibly can. So both myths are the same, really. Work is cursed. Work is a bummer. It's a prison. You and I need to run and escape from it. And I've told you before, like, I never plan on retiring. I might change what I do, but I'm never going to retire. And I have threatened you, I'm going to die in the pulpit. That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Right? Be old, and I'll just be preaching one day, and then I'll die. And my notes will scatter, and I just want somebody to pick up those notes and finish my sermon. It'll be in, like, 72 fonts, so you'll be able to read them easily. (laughs) And if people ask, what happened to Matt? You'll just say, he retired. That's what happened to him. Right, so that one, that one's broke as well. So the Bible comes into this knowing both of these, the blurs of it, and the Bible begins to give us a way of shaping work that I think is really good. So we're gonna look at the blessing of work in Proverbs, the curse of work, and then based on that in Proverbs, as believers, what do we do with work? What do we do with it? Because it's 90,000 hours of your life. That's a lot of life. About a third of your life is spent working. So how do we then walk out work well? All right, so the blessing of work. Look at these Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. 
Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. There's a blessing to this. So the ancient myths, the gods didn't work. They created man to bring them food, and that's the, the whole process was right there. But how does the Bible begin? With God working. Right? It says he worked six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. So the very beginning of the Bible is just in stark contrast to the God Marduk. It's God works, 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 and then rests. And then in chapter two, you see God actually physically getting his hands dirty, forming mankind out of the dirt from the ground. So God is like involved getting his hands dirty. If you keep reading the Bible, what you find is this. Actually, the psalmists, they say it over and over, that God uses his ruach, his spirit, to constantly be renewing the earth, that God never stopped working. He's still at work to this day, okay? And then you come to the New Testament, and it says that even right now, Everything is held together by the power of Jesus. That the very atoms that should be flying apart, they're held together by Jesus. Like he's working, keeping things together. And the whole story of the Bible culminates in one event. It's called the incarnation, where God becomes a man. And how does God become a man? Who does he come as? A pharaoh? The bunch of people serving him? A college professor with all the knowledge? A philosopher in Athens. No, has he come? A carpenter. What do carpenters do? They do manual labor. They work. So you see the narrative of Scripture begins to say, work is a blessing. Work is good. And then mankind, when mankind is created, they're in the garden. Before there's any sin, before there's any brokenness, before there's any problems, God gives Adam a job. What's his job? He's a gardener. Hey, Adam, take care of this place. And if you pay attention to chapter two, it's fascinating. Because verse five of it says this, that actually earth was untamed. It was chaotic. It was, it was uninhabitable, literally. So what happens to land in southern Oregon if it's just left alone? Does it turn into a beautiful garden? No, it's blackberries or poison oak or now medical marijuana will just sprout up on it. One of those is going to happen to untamed ground here, right? So what God is saying is, Adam, I made this little thing called Eden. It's a blueprint for you. You have a bunch of babies and you begin to replicate what I did here throughout the rest of the globe. You just keep moving out and making it like I did here in Eden. That's your job. And the Hebrew word there for garden is avadah, which literally means to cultivate craftsmen or garden. So it's all those things combined. Hey, take your gift, take this job and do something brilliant with it. So chapter one, God makes a capital investment called Eden, then partners with humans saying, Hey, keep doing what I just did. From chaos to order, keep doing what I just did. Produce a beautiful garden with a lot of babies. And guess how the book ends? 
in a garden city called New Jerusalem. Read it, it's a garden city. It has all these hints of Eden, and there's a bunch of people there. That's like what God's goal. I want a bunch of people in this beautiful garden-like city. That's brilliant. And so the prophets would always like pick this up and say, hey, this is cool. This is what's happening. So Isaiah, and I, and I, I love this text. So this is what Isaiah says. This is Isaiah chapter two. It shall come to pass in the latter days, our time, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Gardening tools, right? And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Happy day that will be. No more is all this energy going into violence and war and fighting. Instead, those same implements are turned into gardening tools to cultivate and to make the world beautiful. But I think that prophets would say, you don't have to wait for that time. You can actually begin to do that right now. So don't buy another Nobeski. Buy a tractor. They cost the same amount, about. <laughs> That's what it's saying, like, hey, you can be a different kind of people right now. When you see the violence and the craziness, you start saying, we're headed to a really good place, and we're gonna give a sneak preview of that really good place right now. That work, work is how we cultivate and how we begin to change the world that it is, okay? So that's one side, that look out for this thing, but... Um, I completely lost my place. Okay. Yeah, we're supposed to flip this thing on its head. Uh, an example of this. So my father-in-law, who, hard worker his whole life. Like, he's worked since he was, a, had a paper out at 12 years old, right? It just never stopped working. Finally retired lives a quarter mile from me, bought five acres, five acres of wild, untamed blackberry bushes, right? And he's been there for about 11 years. And he doesn't have to do anything. He can just sit in his house and, you know, be a pharaoh and do, it, do nothing. But he doesn't. You know what he does? Every year, he beats back a little bit of the jungle. He cuts down a little bit more of the blackberries. He puts one more sprinkler head in. He trims up the trees a little bit. He, he's just constantly pushing out because it's in us. It's this drive in us all the way back to Adam. Hey, keep pushing out. Keep, healthy work does that. You're like, I wanna keep pushing out. I wanna keep doing this. And my wife and I were just down there and we're like, Poppy, your place is looking awesome. 
we should have a bunch of people over here to enjoy it. He's like, nah, they'll ruin it. I'm pretty happy with the way it is. <laughs> it's in us. It's just drive to like, ah, push out, push out, push out. And in 20 years of being a pastor and working from a missionary in Vanuatu to at Edgewater, here's what I've noticed. There's nothing more dangerous than a bored man. Right? That's why Genesis 1, before sin, before anything, God gave Adam a job. Because he knew there's nothing worse than a bored man. And I think even if you're retired, you still need to find something to do. So if you're wondering what, just read the story of Caleb. I'm 84 years old. I could pick anywhere I want. Could go retire at the coast. But I'm not. He says, I want the mountain with a giant on it. That somehow Caleb knew in his heart, I can't, I can't stop. If I do, this is gonna be really unhealthy for me. I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna keep going. So if you're in that stage of retirement and you're wondering, what do I do now? Can I recommend a book? Really good book. It's by David Brooks. He's a New York Times writer. He's the token conservative at the New York Times. And he wrote a book a couple years ago called The Second Mountain. Brilliant book. He's like, Early on in your life, you work for money and prestige and success, but at some point you realize those don't do it for you. He says, now you have the chance to climb your second mountain, a mountain of purpose, a mountain that transcends everything that you've done before that. Read that book. It is such a brilliant, brilliant book. So there's a blessing. The Bible's full of, hey, it's blessed. God does it. When God came as a man, he worked, right? It has a blessing. But on the other hand... It's cursed. And those ancient myths, right? Part of the ancient myths, they're not true, but a lot of times they talk about a truth. So it's, it's keying in on something that's in our heart. We kind of know, yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like the God Marduk, like I'd like someone to do my work for me rather than do it myself. All right, we can feel that. Our modern myth of you retire as quick as you can, it's tapping into something. That work, while it is blessed, it's also cursed. So look at this proverb. It's Proverbs 15, verse 16. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the righteous, or the upright, is a level highway. Any Bible students? What do thorns tell you about? Where's the first place we hear about thorns in the Bible? After a man sins... And then Genesis 15, or Genesis 3, 17 through 19, when God looks at Adam and says, hey, bud, thing just changed. Before you take an apple seed and you put it in the ground, and boom, the day later, you got a full apple tree. And it was brilliant. You just broke that whole system. Now, you're going to sweat, and you're going to toil, and you're going to work your tail off, and instead of getting beautiful paradise, you're going to get thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. And then God goes on to say, and eventually work will kill you. Eventually you'll go back to the work. You'll go back to dust, right? And, and if you look at historically, men have had shorter lives than women and they've attributed that to the stress of work. That it just, it kills you. Literally, it's the curse. So this little word thorn, it's taking the Bible reader back to, oh, work has a curse to it, doesn't it? So let me ask for a show of hands. Who here has ever found work to be thorny? 
painful, stressful, keep you up at night when you should be sleeping worried about work. I want you to please note, no Edgewater staff opened or raised their hands. So please note that. I just want you to know that. All right, we all have. We all can feel it. So sometimes, men, it feels like you have the world by the tail. Like, finally, this is going to be it. This is going to be my big break. I'm going to make it. And then all of a sudden, cursed thorns. So you started a business a year ago, and it was going awesome in COVID-19. So right now, the estimate is 25,000 businesses will go bankrupt this year. Who would have predicted that six months ago, right? When we had the hottest economy, maybe in history, record employment. You want a job? We, man, we had so many people coming here saying, please find me someone to work. Now we got record unemployment, just like that, on, just in a, on a dime. Because there's also a curse to this thing. Right? So finally, you're like, okay, I'm getting ahead in life. I'm finally making it. And then your training blows up. This is the year to get out of debt. And then you're laid off. I'm going to buy a house. This is going to be a great investment. Housing market crashes, right? That, that's in this thing. It's, oh, oh. And let's say, just by sheer odds, you beat all that. Somehow you make it through life without any of those things happening to you, which would be a miracle. But then eventually what happens to you? You get old and tired. Like when you really know how to do your job better than anyone else, you're too tired to do it anymore. You just want to take a nap. Right? That's coming for all of us. Like, oh, I'm just exhausted right now. I don't want to do this. I know how to do it better than anyone, but I'm too tired to do it anymore. That's coming for every single one of us. Eventually, age gets us. Like I said, this thing should be reversed. It should be, you get married young, you raise your kids, and at like 45 years of age, you start working till you're 85, and you actually die at your place of work. So Walmart has a morgue in it. It's just like, that's where the retired workers go, right? Because we've all felt the tension when you need to work, and you've got Myron grabbing hold of your leg saying, Daddy, stay with me, play with me. Like, I'd love to, but, uh, right? So there is this like, ah, there's a curse to it. So it's, it's a blurs, right? And the Bible's real honest about that. So as believers, how do we walk this out? Let me give you three ways. Proverbs says, here's how you walk out work with the dilemma of work, with the brokenness of work, with the 90,000 hours you're gonna spend on this thing, here's how you do this. Number one, work needs to be based on your gifting. Work needs to be based on your gifting. This is Proverbs 16.26. There it is. A worker's appetite works for him. I love that one. A worker's appetite works for him. So part of the the brokenness of the way that we choose our careers today is Very often, people now, young people, the first question that they ask about a job is what? What's it pay? So now the motivation is not, what are my appetites? What what do I have? What do I have desires for? The first question is, how much money does this make? 
So doctors used to become a doctor 50 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, because you had high empathy, because you loved people, because you wanted to help people. Now a lot of people become a doctor because they make some money. Lawyers, you used to become a lawyer because you had a sense of justice. You want righteousness done. You wanted to help people that were being run over by giant corporations or whatever, right? You had this drive to make things right, and you were someone that wanted to be sure that it would happen. Now, why do a lot of people become lawyers? Because it makes a lot of money. So if you're paying attention, especially in doctors, like there's been this, this hockey stick of dissatisfaction in medical doctors. Like for a long time, doctors were pretty satisfied with their jobs. They're like, I love what I'm doing. I'm helping people. It's awesome. There's just been this shink hockey stick, especially in young ones. Might it be that the reason why they went for that job was not an appetite that worked for them and kept them involved and kept them loving it, but now it's, well, they chose that because they want to make money. And money's not enough, just as Elijah found my 10-year-old, that that does not sustain it. You gotta have something bigger or better. That's why Proverbs 22, 29, we looked at it earlier. A, a man who's skillful in his work, man, he's gonna be brought before kings. When you find that appetite that drives you and you get skillful and you love what you do, man, doors open for you. So number one, as believers, you gotta do a job that, that fits your gifting, that's based on your gifting. Well, how do I know what my gifts are? I have something simple I tell kids all the time, young people. I say it's joy squared. You'll find your gifting in joy squared. It brings you joy when you do it, but just as importantly, it brings other people joy when you're doing it. It's gotta be both. So if you love teaching the Bible but no one wants to listen to you, probably not your gifting. You might find something else, right? So it's gotta be joy squared. My theology pre professor used to say this, he repeated over and over and over, because a lot of the students were young, um, and he would say this, he would say, do what you love, and then figure out how to, a way to make money at it. Start with your appetite, start with your desires, start with your giftings, and then start saying, how do I make money at this? How do I do this? So for me, like, I tried a lot of stuff. I was an engineer for a while, I was a missionary in Vanuatu for a year. I managed, like I just became a, a manager, like business side, um, assistant pastor, and then here. And I tell young people, write in pencil. You don't have to figure it out right now. You got a life, man. Figure, find out, try some stuff, learn. And then when it's joy squared, ah, oh, that's my gifting, okay. So number one, the Bible says, based on your gifting, God has gifted each of us in certain ways that when we fit into that gifting, it's like, have you heard of the term flow? We just lose track of time. You're so loving the work that you're doing, you actually, you, you go into a different kind of place, flow. So number one, based on your gifting. Number two, it needs to bless the community. So Proverbs 10, five. He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. Note, it does not say, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent man or a prudent boy. 
it says son. Because the Proverbs know this. The son is connected to a family. And that family is connected to a community. And that community is connected to a city. It's, it's, you have a family that you bring shame to or a blessing to. It's gotta bless the community. And that our work is either going to be a blessing to a community or it's gonna be a curse to the community. A young man that does not work, I tell him this. I say, someone's paying your way, man. No one lives for free. Someone's paying your way. You're their blessing or a curse. So a question you have to ask yourself when you're looking at your work is, is this a blessing for my community? Because there are bad jobs. There are jobs that are bad for the community. Well, Matt, what are some examples of bad jobs for a community? Okay, selling meth is a bad job. This is Southern Oregon. Someone might be considering that. Don't, right? So there are things that just, that's destructive and it hurts the community. And as a believer, we say, I can't do that job. I can't be involved in those things. So the Bible is just full of this. As believers, our contribution should make the city that we live in beautiful and brilliant. And the best example is Jeremiah 29.5. It's Babylon. Babylon is the most evil city in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't say, hey, get out of there. Take your stuff and go. Leave it. It doesn't. Jeremiah 29.5 says, hey, when you're in this city, Give your daughters in marriage, plant gardens, build houses, and pray for the peace of that city. You guys, jump in, invest, love that city. Bless it with your work. Bless it, okay? So Martin Luther put it this way. He said, God doesn't need your work. Your neighbor does. God's not there like, man, I hope they get busy. No, our work is to bless our neighbors and bless the people around us. It's... it's God doesn't need your work. He can do it. He can snap his finger and it's done. Your neighbor needs your work. Well, Matt, that's great, but I kind of have a bummer job. It's not my gifting. It's, what about me? I think the way that you do certain jobs that maybe you would not choose, but the way that you're doing that job can be a giant blessing. So I'll give an example, and I'm not saying this is a bummer job. I'm just saying the way that this gal did her job was awesome, okay? So many years ago, I needed to go get some money, and I needed to buy like a cheap commuter car to go back and forth to Portland. So I found this little Honda car for 1,600 bucks. So I went to the bank, got my father-in-law, he's actually with me, give me a ride so I can drive it home. And I'm going to the bank, I go up to the bank teller, and she looks at me and she says, hey, hi, Pastor Matt. I'm like, hey, so we talk for a second. She goes, what do you need? I said, I need 1,600 bucks to go buy a car. So she grabbed a stack of 100s. And in about one one hundredth of a second, like you would shuffle cards, she just went, 1,600 bucks. I went, oh. And then she said that she said, I'm gonna be a sermon illustration, aren't I? I said, oh yeah, that was awesome. I couldn't believe it, right? And we just laughed. I've never forgot that, right? Maybe a bank teller is the most satisfying job she could ever want. I don't know that question. But I'll tell you what, the way that she did it was brilliant. It brought a smile to my face. My father-in-law and I were talking about it. I'm talking about it now, eight years later or whatever. Why? Because the way that she did her work. 
He was there saying, Jesus, I don't know why I'm here today, but I wanna bless the community of people that come in here. I wanna smile, I wanna show your love, I wanna show your grace to people. And the way that she did her work blessed the community. And I think, I don't care, as long as it's not a bad job, as long as it's a job, oh, I think you can bless the community. So it's based on your gifting, it has to bless the community. And then the Bible says this, it's really important. You work to be able to be generous. You work to be able to be generous. Proverbs 3, 7. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his deeds. And then Ephesians 4, 26. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Such an interesting switch there. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with someone in need. If you're not working, you're stealing. So work so you can be generous. So God has a very different economy than our government. The governments have like two main economies, right? There's capitalism, which is work hard so you can have more, reward-based. There's communism, which is you don't have to work and everyone gets the same, which is egalitarian. God says both of those are wrong. Here's God's economy. Work hard so that you can give. His economy is charity. Work hard so that you can have something to give someone else. That's God's economy. Well, Matt, I don't like that. I work for it, it's mine, I want it. Okay, let me give you a couple reasons why I think we're supposed to be generous. Number one, it grows us, okay? Giving isn't because God's broke, it's because you and I are broke. And giving is the way that we get fixed, right? So I mentioned in the parenting proverb that the first two words of most kids are no and mine. There are some people that never grow out of that stage. And so they're old and they're still saying, no, mine. So generosity is God's way of saying, let me help you. Let me fix you. Let me make you into a different kind of person. And when you're generous, that's what happens to you. So it grows us. It makes us godlike. So Acts 20, verse 35, says this. It's better to give than to receive. It's better to give than to receive. So that was wisdom given 2,000 years ago in the scriptures. Because it's amazing. It's been proved today. Two neuroscientists, Jorge Mall and Jordan Grafman, they did these studies on people, and they actually hooked him up to these MRIs and had him do these things. And what they found was this. When you are giving with no strings attached, just giving, the part of your brain that fires is a pleasure center of your brain. The same part of your brain that fires when you're with your spouse or when you're eating really good food, that same center fires when you're generous. Like, we are wired we were designed to be generous. You know why? Because God is. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
of his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have age of body and life. Right? John 3, 16. When you and I do that, we're actually doing what we were designed to do. And you find when you're generous, man, you get joy. You, you get happiness, like, right? The word blessed, if you're here for the happy series, it's just religious terminology for happy. That's all it means. It's more happy to give than to receive. You become God-like. And then lastly, it shows that we get grace. The largest section in the Bible on giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you can read it. It all begins with Jesus, who was rich, became poor for your sake. So based on him, based on the grace that Jesus has shown you, be cheerful givers. That's those whole two chapters. I'll respond just like Jesus did. Respond like him. When you and I are generous, it shows I've got God's grace. I understand that the mind I have, the opportunities I have, the talents, the economy, the way, those are all gifts from God. Those are from him. And so I'm going to respond by being generous. That's what it shows. So work, work is cursed, but it's also blessed. And the more that we, I think, do work according to scripture, the more you find the blessings in it, the more you weed out this junk and feed the good stuff. So we're gonna take communion together. If someone would throw me one of those, uh, thanks for not throwing it because that would have been like putting me on the spot. Can he catch? And I just want us to take a moment, I don't know if you're retired or if you're looking for a job, I don't know what end of the spectrum you are or in the middle, I want us to take a moment and say, Jesus, help us to work in a way that's within the gifts that you've given us, that bless the community that we're here with, and that enable us to be generous. And it doesn't have to be with your money, it's your time, it's your talents, it's your treasures, any one of those things you can be generous with. So just take a minute and really think through work for a second. And then we'll take and eat and remember the one that gave us the grace to be able to work in a way that's a blessing. Jesus, we do this in remembrance of you. That though you were rich, you became poor. Though you were perfect, you took the sins of the world. Though you had comfort, you gave it up and lived homeless. Though you could have called 72,000 angels 
in a moment, you went to the cross. You gave yourself for us. I pray as we partake that we would look at work and a relationship with it like you did. That we become uncomfortable to bless other people. That we are generous to bless this community. That you got your hands dirty and so can we for our community. That we can plant gardens and build houses and raise godly families and pray for the peace of our community. That we can be involved both spiritually and physically in prayer and in work, that they go hand in hand together. So if there is a way that we're looking at work today that's incorrect, we give you permission to reshape us. If we've been so focused on money and not the other important parts of work, convict us, change us, reshape us. Let's take and let's eat together. And we're grateful for forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west, that's as far as you've put our sins away. That maybe we're involved in bad work before. We're forgiven. Maybe we've worked in ways that were motivated not by giving and generosity, but by greed and selfish ambition. Hey, we're forgiven. Maybe we've worked in a way that had false balances. It wasn't fair. It wasn't equitable. We're forgiven. And we're forgiven to live a different way now. To be cleansed. To have the curse subdued and the blessings abound. So as we drink, may we drink forgiveness and cleansing. And may we be sent from here as an army of workers who do it for the blessings. Let's drink together. Amen.